Hi, my name is Sam Fudo, and welcome to the Understanding Healthcare podcast. Today, I spoke with Dr. David Walton, the U.S. Global Malaria Coordinator, with over two decades of experience in global health. Throughout his career, Dr. Walton has worked to improve healthcare delivery for marginalized communities by integrating technological advancements and building successful local partnerships. We discussed his unique perspectives and approaches to combating malaria, the importance of diverse perspectives in global health, and strategies for creating sustainable healthcare systems. So, here's my conversation with Dr. David Walton. You know, again, Dr. Walton, it really means a lot that you're able to make time today. I guess, you know, my first question is, with over two decades of experience working in global health, including tackling various disease outbreaks and strengthening health systems, what unique perspectives and approaches do you bring to your current role as U.S. Global Malaria Coordinator? So I think it's important to recognize that history does not begin with me, right? And so I step into this job, I'm eight months in, and I am standing on the shoulders of an just unbelievable team of people that have worked diligently for so long, 17 years, in fact, the previous coordinators and some of the folks who are actually still working within PMI who've been there since the very beginning. And so, you know, my first comment is to really recognize, make space to recognize those achievements and, and, and to understand PMI couldn't and wouldn't be where it is today were it not for those contributions. I think secondly, everyone brings different, um, different perspectives and different, different experiences to any role in which they sort of um, uh, fill. And I think for me, one of the things that guides my approach, guides my vision, guides the way that I view this role is through the lens of my time as an implementer. Right, I spent over 15 years working primarily in Haiti, but in other other settings as well, um, working alongside and accompanying my colleagues who are were usually um, clinicians uh, from that setting, and I think it's really it's a very pers- important perspective, at least in my role, to really understand what, what are the challenges that actually happen. Um, in country when you are working. And it when you're in a place like Washington or any other place that is fundamentally divorced from the work as it is happening, there are gaps in understanding. There are gaps in seeing the nuances. There are gaps in the full comprehension of what is taking place. And so I would be foolish if I were to say I that my experience sort of closes that gap. But what I would say is one of the things that I feel that is one of the largest components of my role is to make them successful. Because if I'm able to make those folks who are working in country successful, we are not only doing our job and fulfilling our congressional mandate, but we're, we're, we're doing what is called upon us by the people that we're serving, right? At the end of the day, we are in service of them and for them. And that is the most important perspective that I have in terms of saying, how is quite literally everything that we're doing going to be in service of the folks that we are accompanying through this process through our work in PMI? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of that ties together, you know, 
what are the advancements that are taking place over time to help a lot of these sort of policy changes actually become implemented on the ground? That's obviously a bulk of the work that, that you're engaged in. Um, you know, throughout your career, you've demonstrated this commitment to utilizing technology and innovation. You mentioned implementation to really improve healthcare delivery and systems for marginalized communities. How do you envision integrating these advancements in the global fight mm -hmm. against malaria? No, it's a great question, Sam. And I, let me just double back just to one quick um, point that you made around policy. But policy is important, right? right? And I think even when, I mean, obviously a large component of, of my role is working on policy at the global stage. But the implementation of the work is fundamentally shaped and right. or constrained by policy. And so again, even when I'm, or especially when I'm in those policy circles, it is the understanding that the decisions that we're making that are not, frankly, in the countries, right? Mm -hmm. But that we're in, again, usually in Geneva, where I was just right. moving from yesterday or some other place, um, have the potential to affect millions mm -hmm. of people. And so it, it, is, it is incredibly and especially important that that perspective is uh, the, the, the key perspective that we have when, when, when we are in these closed door sessions in these uh, uh, centers of power, frankly. Yeah. I think from the technology perspective, I've had a lot of experience thinking about technology. And what I would say is, I think it's critically important that we not fetishize technology. Again, let me go back to a, a lot of the times in which this, these technologies are developed or thought through, it is in places that are divorced from the settings in which they will be implemented or the settings for which we want to have the, have the maximal impact. Therefore, they are created and or sort of thought through by folks who are not in those endemic countries, not having experienced those challenges, but rather in a typically a center of power or a center of uh, uh, where that is economically elite. And so the, the, the challenge is the, how do you think about technology? And many folks do, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sort of saying anything that hasn't been said before. How do we think about technology and the development of technology to be in service of, again, those who were, to, who were trying to accompany through these, these challenging processes in their health journey and making sure that the technology is fully informed by that perspective and also understanding technology doesn't solve everything, right? right? I mean, I think if you're, you know, we, we want to, you know, if I'm a carpenter, everything looks like a nail, right? And so we think, ah, technology, the rest of the, much of the global North services sort of, we're, you know, we have chat GPT, we have all these things that are just, technology is accelerating at an incredible pace. And so we say, well, if it works for us, clearly it'll be work, it'll work for them. How can we apply chat GPT to, you know, Northern Kenya or some such, right? And I think, you know, A, what is the, what, what is the problem we're trying to solve? And B, if I can't get, you know, if I don't have medicines, for right. example, for, or, you know, for malaria medicines, to use our malaria example, but malaria or medicines in general, or if I am having trouble paying my, the clinicians who are in the clinic, technology is not going to be helpful. And so we have to recognize, and I think continue to keep in mind, technology can be useful. It can be incredibly powerful but it has to be applied in the right way, in the right circumstances, um, and in, again, in solidarity with those we're trying to serve. And the other thing I would say is, 
so often in technology, the folks who create that technology sort of create it and then sort of say, you know, to exit stage right, right and say, thank right. you very much, I've done my job. Right. Whereas the creation of it is the first step. And then how do you operationalize it? How do you maintain it? How do you absorb those operational costs into an already deeply constrained ministry budget? Right. You know, how do we, you know, how do you keep the hardware people, like the people who create the software aren't necessarily thinking about those hardware costs. And not that they shouldn't necessarily, but when you think about technology, it's also critically important to think about the entire ecosystem uh, of the introduction of that technology and the effects that it has in the system in which you're introducing it. And frankly, the cost, the, the operational expenses, and all these things that, again, when you're coding, for example, you may not be thinking about. And I'm, I'm grateful for coders, and they should be continuing, and, and our engineers, they should be continuing to do that. But it's, it's, a, it's a, again, it's just back to let us not fetishize this, but rather keep it in mind as we look to tackle these critical problems. Absolutely right. And I think, obviously, two things there, which is not only you know planning and coordinating these developments with the very people that it's intended to serve, but also not just like you said, leaving it, but iterating over time to like be optimized and come up with the best product at the time, right? And the best possible delivery model. Um, you mentioned at the outset of that answer, um, being in Geneva, and certainly much of your your role with PMI is engaging with multilateral institutions, global institutions, many different countries. Um, what's the importance of these sort of diverse perspectives coming together, these important partnerships that we really keep afloat over time? What's the importance of these and, and how does that relate to ch tackling the challenges we face now and moving forward in global health? I think it's a really great question. And I think this role has given me a very new perspective um, because it opened my eyes to the important, not necessarily to the importance of collaboration, but to the to the actual brass tacks mm -hmm. of that coordination, right? So let me give you an example. As we think about malaria, there are a variety of, of existential threats to our progress that we have made over the last decade, two decades um, at, at the least. Um, and one of those, for example, is resistance to the primary medication for which we use to treat malaria, artemisinin, and we call the medicines artemisinin-containing compounds or treatments, ACTs. Um, and we are, so there's, when you look globally, there's a great deal of artemisinin resistance in, in Asia, in the Mekong region, where we do all, PMI also has presence and we work a lot on those mm -hmm. issues. But then, and that's been a challenge for some years now, and, in, and on the continent of Africa, where the majority of the malaria burden is globally, we have enjoyed uh, a fair amount of, of freedom uh, okay. from resistance. That We are no longer in that space. And so we are beginning to see, particularly in the Horn of Africa, but also in some other countries, resistance yeah. to, these, uh, to these medications that are frankly one of the only options that we have, right? Um, and so artemisinin resistance, a huge global challenge, again, existentially threatens, should it get out of hand, to undo the progress that we've made, much of the progress that we've made. And so when you think about that problem, you, have, you can think about it at a variety of different levels, certainly at the sort of the individual level, then sort of intra-country level, at the country level, and then at the sort of bilateral, multilateral stakeholder mm -hmm. 
And again, these bilateral and multilaterals, they, I mean, they're important, but they're also usually significant donors and the coffers that they have are, the pockets are deep, let me put it that way. And if you, when you have such a significant issue like artemisinin resistance, it is critically important that we are moving forward to address this problem in an, in an aligned way, right? And one of the challenges I think that I've noticed is that we all see the problem. We're all working on the problem. And yet there are additional opportunities that I think we all recognize for us to create closer alignment. We all have our different strengths. Therefore, we'll all be tackling the problem differently. But how are we moving in concert with each other? Because when we aren't, there is more friction created than energy, yeah. right? And we're just essentially not able to do as much as we otherwise would have. Again, with hundreds of millions of dollars sort of you know, being invested into these significant issues. And you want to maximize the value for every single dollar, especially the value of the American taxpayer for which PMI is able to leverage to, uh, you know, in this fight against malaria. And so as we think about PMI and as we think about our role, we certainly are eager to look to create and align closer with these other bilateral multilaterals. And it isn't that we aren't, I don't want folks to take that message away, but rather, again, opportunities for closer alignment create more energy than friction as we tackle these issues that are multi-generational. And again, I know this is the third time I'm saying this, but it is hard to understate how much of a threat this is to the progress that we have made um, that has that saved nearly two, or at least 12, almost 12 million lives and, and sort of prevented at least uh, nearly, I should say 2 billion uh, malaria infections since 2000. Yeah, and 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 it's really great point you, you, you bring up there. Uh, certainly, obviously it's, it's not just sort of staying where we are in the, in the constant, but really how do we continuously better align ourselves with all these partners they mentioned, not just sort of on that macro, bilateral, multilateral level, but country to country, community, community, individual, individual. Um, you know, back to the other question I had asked earlier on technology and how does that help advance a lot of these solutions? Um, certainly, like you mentioned, digital tools, technology, it's not always the answer. And it really depends on how do you create these sort of sustainable solutions um, much of your career has been centered around uh, healthcare infrastructure and development, mm -hmm. capacity building. What strategies do you believe are crucial to creating a sustainable and effective healthcare system that can combat, you know, uh, diseases like malaria and other global health challenges? Yeah, it, so I will go back to my um, my late mentor, Paul Farmer's mm -hmm. pithy aphorism that he developed, I think, about I don't know, eight years ago, yeah. um, where he, what he calls the four S's, and there's, I think, five now, um, but staff, stuff, space, and systems. And it seems, I mean, I, I will readily admit when I first heard it, I mean, it resonated, but I was like, oh, it's a little simplistic, but it isn't, right? Because yeah. it is deceptively complicated uh, and encompasses, in a, again, a rather pithy way, so much of the components that are key to our success when you think about staff. And when I think about staff, again, coming off the heels of a incredibly motivational and I think rather successful uh, community health worker symposium that just was held in Liberia a few weeks ago, you think first and foremost, or I think first and foremost about community health workers and really championing community health workers and making sure that they have, that they are paid, they are recognized cadre of the healthcare systems in these particular countries. They are trained 
um, and that they have the supplies that they need. Otherwise, they are unable to sort of realize their potential. But such an important, important um, component of the health system. I also think about, again, and then you think, of, of course, about other components of the health system and the, at the health centers, for example, hmm. the nurses, the midwives, the pharmacists, the clinicians, and again, making sure that they have the things that they need in order to actually live up to, work up to, I should say, the the the, the top of their their training, right? Um, and too often they are hamstrung by things out of their control, ruptured supply chain. So I'm seeing a patient, but yet can't give them the right uh, malaria medicines. Um, or, for example, the space. That's another S. For, and when I think about that, I think about infrastructure and actually the bricks and mortar, right. right? It is very difficult to successfully treat someone for pneumonia if you don't have electricity or you <laughs> don't have um, the right antibiotics or your roof is leaking or you, you, know, you don't have enough inpatient uh, hospital beds. Um, systems, of course, talks about all the interleakages for a, a robust and successful healthcare system. And, and you know, I would say that every country is has issues with that and sort of continues to try to optimize that. And there's more opportunities in some places than other, but really thinking about, you know, how we at PMI think about that. And then let me pause here for a second to say, or digress to say, it's important to recognize that as PMI, while it is titularly a vertical program and our congressional mandate, of course, is to really focus on malaria, it's important to underscore no vertical program can be successful in isolation. We were shown that in sharp relief, by the way, during the early years of the HIV epidemic or pandemic, I should say, where you know we had these incredibly vertical programs that failed because they were not integrated into the primary healthcare system yeah. or a system, typically, and, and most importantly, the primary healthcare system. And so as we, PMI, as we have since 2006, think about how we can be maximally effective, right? It is, yes, focusing on malaria and malaria outcomes, but that cannot be in isolation of the health system, right? So as we think about, you know, vector control, you know, AKA thinking about how to prevent, how to, you know, get at the mosquitoes that, that transmit malaria, or we think about um, the medicines that we're using to, to treat malaria, we're thinking about these cross-cutting issues of how do we strengthen the supply chain, not only for malaria, but writ large, we think about the delivery of services. Let's go back to community health workers. We're thinking about how can we support community health workers that are, of course, are working on malaria, but also thinking about you know, pneumonia and diarrhea and you know prenatal care for women. So these cross-cutting issues, we're really, as PMI, on this S issue systems, um, really focusing on and have focused, but are continuing to focus on how we're able to buttress the system itself so, because ultimately, malaria is kind of the canary in the coal mine of the system itself. I was just in West Africa visiting a country, and I went to a clinic, and um, um, some amazing clinicians that were there, and they had around about a thousand patients per month that they were seeing. Very, very high throughput. Yeah. And so I asked a very simple question, which is, how many patients of those thousand outpatients do you see? What percentage of those are you seeing have malaria? The answer was over 50%. And so when you think about a health system that has 500 plus patients out of a thousand yeah. presenting with malaria, 
what happens when you really reduce that burden of malaria? Not only are you able to treat these folks more effectively, typically, and most effectively in the community, so they never have to even come to a, a facility, but you're also deburdening the health system, yeah, right? Yeah. So if you're not, if you're seeing a thousand patients and 500 are coming with, with malaria, what happens when those, when 400 of those 500 don't have to go to the clinic? Clinicians have more time. Your, your, your supply chain is, has take, can take a little bit of a, a right. deep breath. Your pharmacists aren't sort of, you know, working at a breakneck pace to sort of do all the things they need to do. You're creating more space to then focus on all the other things that are certainly happening. Exactly. And yet malaria is taking up a lot of the stage time because it is so prevalent. And so not only is really treating malaria critically important, it also is the canary in the coal mine for the health system, in my view. And all, and additionally, when do you focus on malaria or can focus on malaria, it's going to deburden your entire system. If you are at a place where, say, outpatient visits are over 50%, or it's the leading cause of it, of inpatient admissions, which it is in many countries. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would say first props, because I think we could have probably had an hour-long conversation on each one of the S's <laughs> That's right. uh, in, in there. Uh, but secondly, it speaks to how all of this is sort of circuitous. And it t just tackling one thing will address so many of the other crises that we see going on, whether it be workforce crises, there's so many of those things coming together. Um, you know, moving on to a sort of another sort of situational and, and as existential threat to many of these strategies is climate change and how that has mm -hmm. uh, affected the transmission and spread of malaria. Um, it's certainly a crisis across health systems more broadly, but as it relates to, to your work and the issues and strategies that you think about, how does that play a role in really uh, addressing health threats and, and developing these sustainable solutions that we were just discussing? Ah, Sam, that is the question, yeah. right? That so many of us are thinking about. And when we, so when I think about artemisinin resistance, yeah. there is a clear set of things that we need to do and an outcome is not assured, but there's a very clear set of objectives we need to do. Climate change is tricky, right? Because it is happening. We it is upon us. It has been upon us for some time, and the effects are inherently unpredictable. In so, I mean, now yes, the temperature rise in general is predictable. But then, what the effects of that has, other than understanding more extreme weather events, but where, how, when, our ability to actually prepare for those things, um, understanding that we are dealing with malaria and many other diseases, but particularly since we're talking about malaria, a vector-borne disease. And how does that affect the vector? How does that affect the parasite? But most importantly, how does that affect the host, right? And so let's, let's take a couple of examples. First example, we have seen in Senegal, for example, we have a campaign called Seasonal Malaria Chemo Prevention, where we are um, take so during the the peak malaria season for kids, traditionally kids that's changed now. But for kids, we're prospectively giving them essentially prophylaxis, so monthly um, malaria medicine to prevent them from developing active disease. Hmm. That you that rainy season, well, the, the peak transmission season used to be three months long. It is now four months long. And we don't know what is going to happen in the future, but that has downstream ramifications on our abilities to then procure yeah. more medicines, engage these the the campaigns. Like it, that 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 just that change has huge effects monetarily, supply chain, clinician delivery, all these things, right? So that's one. That's a sort of more subacute issue. Right? 
And then, of course, you can think about, say, the floods in Pakistan, mm-hmm. um, in which you know cases shot through the roof. You can think about Cyclone Freddy that just hit Mozambique and right. other places that in a, in a, that we've already seen significant upticks in malaria transmission. And so the question then becomes on a on a more biological and sort of predictive level, how are we going to adapt? What, are, what can we prospectively do? Because yes, of course we need to do all we can in terms of our own carbon footprint and PMI is doing that already. We've changed the way that we're thinking about uh, already um, shipping our, our yeah. commodities from, so from you know, using you know, the air freight to shipping on sea containers, which has reduced our carbon footprint significantly. Mm-hmm. And of course, all the other ways in which we and our work contributes to that carbon footprint, we're actively looking to reduce that. But, all, but alternatively, or since the alternative, but additionally, how do we think about, um, and how do we think about developing tools, et cetera, for understanding when these extreme weather events or even subacute events, like I talked about for Senegal, are upon us and be able to, uh, to, to, to pivot and to change pre-position medications. What are our predictive tools? We're actually actively developing predictive tools that are able to layer on historical rainfall data you know, as well as um, transmission data, prevalence data, incidence data. And when you stack those things in, so you can then thank goodness for the incredible data scientists that we have, we're able to then create these analytical models to be able to then create some predictability, but it's still not perfect. And so we have a lot of work to do just on those particular issues. And I think we have only seen the beginning of some of these changes. But the other thing that I would underscore is when you think about climate change, we have to remember who bears the brunt of climate change, which is the most vulnerable amongst us, right? right? The most economically disadvantaged amongst us. So you will see then often people who are who are the most vulnerable and who are the most economically disadvantaged, also the most, or I should say the highest risk for malaria. Exactly. And so you have this confluence of factors. And then, of course, there's also migration from rural to urban as they lose their ability to create a livelihood in the rural sector and they're moving to the urban sector. And then, of course, we have a new vector um, that sort of takes root in, is taking root in urban settings and has different pat- patterns of uh, biting humans. And so that you have all the, again, nothing is ever just sort of a siloed issue. Right. Climate change has the ability to wreak havoc and is already wreaking havoc on a lot of the things that we're working on in malaria. And so we, I, there is no one ring to rule them all. Uh, there is no perfect solution, but we're continuing to iterate. We're continuing to work across the US government and um, with our other colleagues globally to really try to understand what are the things that we can do, the tools that we can develop and the adaptations that we can make in order to mitigate some of these effects, not only for the people we're trying to serve, but for the health systems in general. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, it, it's perfectly right. I think it speaks to, again, sort of the, just the com- complexity and the, inter- the intertwined nature of many of these things and how none of them, like you said, live in a silo. And it not only just speaks to sort of the global implications of all of this, but really you mentioned just silo in the case of the work at PMI on the ground in, in Washington or in the US, let alone anywhere else in the world. Um, just a two-parter before my last question, but um, with your experience in both clinical practice and healthcare ma- management really in this role now, but you know, bridging that gap between individual patient care with sort of that macro level 
administration work. Um, how do you balance this and the need for immediate action uh, with malaria, uh, with those long-term efforts that to strengthen health systems like we've been discussing? I would say that it's not a zero-sum game and they are not mutually exclusive. And so one needs to make sure that you're working not at, not everything everywhere all at once, but rather, do you like all these little like, you know, pop culture illusions <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that I throw in here? Yeah. Um, we, <laughs> we, it's not that we have to, we can do that because ultimately you have to be able to prioritize. But be, again, they're not mutually exclusive. And so, of course, every child that dies of malaria, every pregnant woman that gets sick from malaria, it is just, a, it feels like a crushing defeat. And to know that last year, there were over 600,000 people who died from malaria um, and that we have yet to reclaim the gains that we had or were making, I should say, before the peak COVID years is really, really challenging. And understanding at the same time, these existential threats, climate change is certainly one of them, Anopheles Stevens, I, a new vector that I alluded to, um, as well as artemisinin resistance and a variety of others. Um, it's just, it can seem overwhelming. And so that is why PMI, not only, and I'm so proud of the work that my colleagues are doing within PMI, is doing everything they can in country with our in-country folks and the implementing partners that we work with to really tackle this, these issues sort of, again, at the, at the individual level. And also thanking and with deep gratitude to our headquarters folks who are in Washington and Atlanta, because we are an interagency collaboration between USAID and CDC, to know that we are working I mean, the folks in the country are sort of doing what's called backstopping work, supporting the country teams with the resources in Washington, and also then working on the on the on the global level and the policy level. But I would underscore the answer to that question to me is to know that we are not alone, and we cannot be alone. We cannot tackle these issues by ourselves. We must do this collaboratively. It's too. It's these issues are bigger than PMI. They are bigger than the U.S. government. So understanding that. PMI is the primary where the US government focuses on malaria, but understanding that, you know, we have the NIH, we have the CDC that's not part of PMI, we have the DOD, we have so all these other agencies that are focusing on malaria. So there's a there's a there's a whole of US US government approach. Mm -hmm. And then we think about all the partners globally, the Global Fund, Gates Foundation, um, are, are, are most importantly, the countries that we are working with, right? The, the, that we are in, uh, in solidarity with and trying to accompany through this um, and are working at the, at the, as guests uh, at behest of their national malaria control programs. Like those are the partners that we are engaging with and many others, I should say, Unitate, et cetera, to be able to work on these issues because it's bigger than all of us. And it is only when we are able to collaborate, to align, to really come together, that we have seen and will continue to see progress in the fight against malaria, both at the individual patient level, and again, also at the global and the policy level. Yeah, absolutely. And one more question before we before we close here, but, uh, you know, as a, a leader in these areas, as a leader, again, like I said, bridging that gap between clinical medicine, patient care with these existential threats on the macro and population level, um, what advice would you give to young people who are passionate about 
medicine and public service and how can they contribute to these threats and challenges, but indeed opportunities uh, you see moving forward? Uh, well, I'll <laughs> what I would say is, things are incredibly challenging right now. So know that whatever you're doing, whatever path you take, there are contributions you can make on this fight. And I wouldn't, like, again, let me take my PMI hat off and just say, you know, in general, in global health, and frankly, on the health of, I'm a US citizen, I'm sitting here in Washington, in the health of our, our uh, folks in this country. And I would say, you know, and it, it often gets construed as, well, I'm a surgeon, so I can't be helpful, or I'm an epidemiologist who really focuses on um, uh, I don't know, insert some topic here that isn't necessarily related to health system strengthening or global health. It, it, those skills are transferable. Those skills, yeah. like, and there's so much, many opportunities across the spectrum. Again, you know, one wouldn't necessarily think as a carpenter or as an architect or as a builder, there is space for you in global health. And yet, Look at all the challenges we have around infrastructure. So, you know, what I would say to folks, young people, is pursue your passion, pursue what, you, what fuels you, because that is what will wake you up excited to do the thing that you're doing every day. But know, recognize, and embrace that whatever skill set you have, there is an absolutely potential and, frankly, a need to apply that to these, these multi generational challenges that we are facing. When I'm dead and gone, we're still going to have issues, right? And there's still going to be huge opportunities for people across the board with just a panoply of skill sets to be engaging in this in these challenges and frankly seizing on these opportunities. Like I said, you know, throughout this 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 discussion, it takes a collaborative approach. It takes all of us. It isn't just doctors. It isn't just nurses. It isn't just midwives. It isn't just epidemiologists. It isn't just statisticians. It isn't just folks with an MPH or an MD or an MBBS. It is all of us. And so my challenge to an clarion call to the young folks is pursue your passion, do what fuels you, do what your vocation calls you to do, and yet remember the opportunities to be of service to those who don't have as much as we have to whom we can be in solidarity, to whom or with whom we can engage on a journey of, a, of accompaniment and in, in solidarity with them to improve these challenges, again, domestically and internationally. Global health doesn't mean outside of our US borders, it means the entire globe. We are part of that. Right. And so I wanna make sure that folks understand that I'm talking about everywhere that people exist on this planet. There are opportunities to contribute, opportunities to make a difference. Absolutely. Um, Dr. Rawls, it really means a lot that you're able to make time today. My pleasure. Thank you, Sam. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope my conversation with Dr. Walton provided a unique insight on the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead in global health, particularly as it relates to the fight against malaria. Dr. Walton has a wealth of experiences throughout his career across sectors to make an impact on global health challenges such as technological advancements, building sustainable health systems, and creating partnerships that are long-lasting. I hope his shared experiences inspire you to move forward with a renewed focus on the issues that matter most moving forward. I hope you're doing well and staying safe, and remember, we can't just consume healthcare.
we have to understand healthcare.